2 Corinthians chapter 7, 7, beginning in verse 2. This is what the Word of God has to say. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all of your affliction. I am overjoyed, over, overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. But God who comforts the downcast uh, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve, with my letter, I do not regret it. And though I did regret it, for I see that, that, that I see that, that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves with indignation, what fear, with, with longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the, ma in the, manner, in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it is not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For it, who, but for whatever boast I made to him about you, it, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Regret is a, a powerful emotion. Most of you have uh, experienced it in some form or fashion at some point in your life. Generally, it's connected to missing or squandering an opportunity or um, being unsatisfied with a, a decision that was later revealed to be foolish, unwise, or bad. For example, you can regret both not buying something when you had the opportunity or you can regret buying something that was uh, proved not to be worth the price that you, that you paid for it. You can regret something you said and you can regret something that you did not say that you, that you should have. Throughout your life, there will be many things that you regret doing and regret that, that you are uh, uh, not doing. Um, several years ago when we were living in, in Adel, my, my neighbor uh, had an accident with a, um, a, a power tool, a yard power tool, and he cut his hand really, really bad. 
his wife did not do blood and those sort of things. So she came over to our house and she said, you've got to take Chris to the hospital. I, I can't do it. So I took Chris, who was a manly man, a man's man, to the hospital. Chris was a hunter and a, and a fisher and a, just a, a manly man, an athlete, and took him to the hospital. We go into the ER. He's got a pretty good cut across his hand, and this, I, 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 this is a helpful description. This very petite, short ER doc comes into the room, and she looks at his hand. She sees the, the cut that he has, and she says to him, she says, you know, not too long ago, I had a similar cut on my hand. And, you know, if I put medicine in your hand to deaden it up, that's a lot of pain. She said, so what I did is I just sewed it up without any deadening medicine. What do you want to do? Now, men, for the sake of all manhood, you know what he said, don't you? He looked at that petite little uh, ER doc and he said, you, that's fine, you do the same thing for me. boy, Chris. So she goes and she gets all the uh, material and prepares to, to suture his hand up and if you've ever had that experience, it's, it's, like, um, it's like sewing a piece of fabric. There's pulling, there's tugging, there's poking. And so I'm his pastor, I'm standing in the room, the siding, and she begins to do his work. I'm watching. She's poking through one edge of the skin, pulling it so that she can connect it to the other part of the skin. And the more she worked, the whiter he got. And with his good hand, he grabbed up under the hospital bed and he was about to pull it apart. As he squeezed, the harder he could squeeze because it was excruciating pain. But for the sake of all manhood, he wasn't gonna say a word about it, amen? Now, to her, to the doctor's credit, about halfway through the, the work, she saw that he was about to lose his mind with pain. And she stopped for just a moment and she said, would you like me to use a little deadening medicine? And regardless of trying to maintain his manhood, he said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and she put some medicine in there and it got better. Now, the question has to be asked. Why would my friend allow this woman, willfully and intentionally, why would he allow her to cause him such excruciating pain? It was a horrible experience. Why would he let her do that? Why would he, in, in fact, invite her in? He went to the ER. He invited the process to happen. Why would he do that knowing that it was going to be painful and unpleasant and difficult? He was willing, I think, to endure the entire experience without any deadening medicine and was asking for it. Why would my friend allow that ER doctor to cause him such pain? He did so because he believed, rightly so, that through that pain and difficulty, the sewing up of his wound, that would lead to both healing and the restoration of his hand. Now, he could have chosen just to let the wound be. He could have allowed infection to, to step in. He could have allowed all the dysfunction and disability, disease, and bad things to happen from his wound, and he may have avoided the difficulty and the pain of being stitched up. But he allowed the stitching to happen and all the pain that came along with it because he understood that that pain in his life, though, though bad, was temporary and would lead to a long-term health and well-being. 
Now, I haven't talked to him in, a, in, in many years, but I, I have a pretty safe assumption to make. I'm pretty confident that if I were to call him right now and ask him, Are, do you regret the pain that you experienced when that doctor sewed your hand up? He would probably say no. Because the pain is long forgotten by now, but the healing and health of his hand is much enjoyed. Regret is not a feeling, uh, is not feeling bad because of difficulties. Regret flows from the recognition of a squandered opportunity. When you walk in obedience before the Lord, it may cause you to walk through difficult days, and it may cause you to experience and know momentary, the, the word that the English Standard Version uses is grief. Some of your translations may say sorrow, momentary grief or sorrow and suffering. But what Paul says in this passage, and what I absolutely believe, is that that momentary sorrow, that momentary grief that leads to repentance and restoration, you will never regret. In this passage, Paul is referencing an issue he addressed in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul uh, exposed and confronted the church because they had allowed someone who was living in unrepentant sexual sin. In fact, a, a sin that Paul says not even the pagans participate in. They had allowed that sin not only to remain in the church, but to be unconfronted. They didn't want to upset things. They didn't want to hurt feelings. And so this person who was living in this sin was remaining in the church without being confronted. And Paul simply said, that is not right. You cannot let that continue. And in fact, the end of chapter 5 basically calls out the church to separate themselves from, from one who will not repent from such sin. Now he writes in thanksgiving and joy. In fact, you cannot miss in chapter 7 the, the positive um, sense that he writes. He, is, he, he keeps using the word, I'm comforted by hearing the, the testimony that Titus tells about you. I, I'm comforted and joyful to hear about what you have done in response to my into my letter, he, is, he is, writes in thanksgiving and in joy for the repentance that the grief and sorrow that his first letter inflicted, he writes in thanksgiving and joy that it has produced repentance and restoration. So in this passage, he makes clear that he did not enjoy writing hard things in his previous letter, but, but, but because of his love for the people and the church, he was grieved by their sin and saddened that, those, that they had to write such hard words and, and that they had to be given, but he, is, but he is rejoicing in his confidence that not only have the Corinthian church dealt with the sin and repented, but he's also rejoicing that he is confident they will not regret receiving his words, responding in repentance, and being restored both to the Lord and in right relationship with other believers. So this morning, I want to talk about no regrets. And I want to talk about three ways that I think we need to walk through this life before the Lord with no regrets. Number one, no regrets in pain. No regrets. Number two, no regrets in grief or in godly grief or godly sorrow. And then thirdly, no regrets in fellowship with one another. But let's begin with pain. No regrets in pain. Now I would draw your attention to verse 8 and 9 back in the passage where Paul writes, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. 
Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Friends, there is no regret in godly pain, godly pain. I want to make the case to you this morning that avoiding pain is not healthy. Beware of the dangerous avoidance of pain. No one who truly cares for another enjoys causing another person pain. That's why Paul says, I, I regret, I don't write and regret the words that I spoke to you, but I do regret, he says, hurting your feelings. I do regret the pain in which I inflicted in your soul because of what I wrote. Uh, one of the hardest things for children to understand, or maybe better word to use, one of the hardest things for children to actually believe is when their parents discipline, and, discipline them and say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Now, in total honesty, when I heard that as a kid, I thought, yeah, right. <laughs> Who's the one about to get the spanking, right? I'm going to be the one in pain. And yet it wasn't until I was a father of my own and had children of my own and was responsible for disciplining my children that I understood that dynamic of being painful, being painful to inflict discipline and pain upon your children for their good and for their, for their blessing. Confronting sin and disobedience is always unpleasant and painful. But friends, we must not avoid pain simply because it is unpleasant. Paul loved the church enough to confront the church concerning their sin. He cherished righteousness over pleasant relationships with them. There's a confusion that's, that's present right now that somehow loving someone means never saying something hard to that person. Loving someone means never confronting something that's amiss or sinful, that somehow love means always being nice and pleasant. But friends, love motivates, true love motivates you to pursue what is right good and healthy, God-honoring, no matter the, the momentary difficulty it might produce. A parent who loves their children disciplines their children. The Bible says uh, only illegitimate children are not disciplined. In other words, only children that are not loved are not disciplined. Many today hate pain more than they hate sin. Many today hate pain more than they hate sin. So they choose to ignore sin so that they can attempt to avoid pain in their own life and even in the life of others that they claim to love. Friends, the, the call of Scripture, listen to me carefully, the call of Scripture is that you must hate sin more than you hate pain. The sad truth is that our culture values comfort over truth. What will receive the most emotional and passionate response today is to speak truth that confronts and exposes sin. 
Some of you have experienced this. To speak truth to someone that exposes their sin, to speak truth to someone that, 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 that declares a truth about them that is not right or good or healthy will be responded to with great emotional response. Sometimes it happens in the church. I, I have heard stories of pastors who dare to speak truth about sin and, 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 reveal and receive because of that unrestrained attacks and abuse from those who love their comfort more than they loved truth. I've been pastoring now a little over 20 years, and one of the things that I have often found funny is that the one who oftentimes tells me, oh, pastor, that really stepped on my toes, is the very one who comes after me viciously when I actually step on their toes. I was once asked to perform a wedding. It's been years ago now. I was once asked to perform a wedding, and I didn't know the couple well. I knew the, the future bride, but I did not know the, the future groom. And so I met with them. And one of the first things I do when I meet with couples is I begin to ask them about where they are spiritually. Did they, did they know the Lord? And the, 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 the bride gave a very, very shallow answer, but she claimed to know Jesus. The groom was very honest, and he said, I don't believe the Bible. I, I don't believe the gospel, I'm not a Christian, and I have no interest in being a Christian. Well, I, I appreciated the honesty, but then I explained to them that, that the Bible teaches us that we're not to be unequally yoked, and so in good conscience, I could not participate in marrying one who claimed to know the Lord and one who claimed not to know the Lord. They left, and it wasn't an hour later, I got a phone call, and it was a nasty phone call. The parents were mad. The cousins were mad. <laughs> the friends were mad. How dare I confront them about their relationship? The end result was the family left the church over it. And, but the sad reality to me was the family wasn't concerned that their daughter had a very weak uh, testimony of salvation. The family wasn't concerned that the, that the son-in-law that they were about to have didn't know the Lord and was destined for hell. The only thing they were concerned about is how dare I confront that reality in their life. I had hurt their feelings. They were willing to let their children go to hell as long as they were happy on the way there. Friends, If you love comfort, it will tempt you to reject truth so that your comfort might not be disturbed. You must hate sin more than you love comfort. And we must allow the Word of God to disrupt our comfort that we might walk in a right relationship with God. God's truth will do that. You spend time in the Word of God, it'll disrupt your comfort. But it is only in when the Word of God disrupts your comfort, exposes your sin, that you can then have a right relationship with God as it leads to repentance. You see, purposeful pain brings healing. Short discomfort is better than eternal destruction. So Paul rejected, uh, regretted the pain that he caused, but he rejoiced in the temporary pain that, that because it produced long-term righteousness. Now, verses 8 and 9 are a little confusing to read. So first he says, I don't regret what I said to you. 
And then almost immediately, in the same breath, he says, though I do regret it because I caused you grief. So he's out of both sides of his mouth. Don't regret it, but I do regret it. And then he says, but I'm joyful because you were grieved. So I don't regret what I said, but I do regret what I said because it hurt your feelings, but I rejoice that it hurt your feelings because it brought you to righteousness. Now, I think both things are true. Paul loved the people and was heartbroken that his letter had caused them pain. I don't know if you've ever experienced somebody that, that enjoyed saying hard things. That's not the sense here. Paul didn't enjoy writing 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's an unpleasant chapter. Anybody who enjoys discipline, there's something dysfunctional about them. Anybody who call, enjoys inflicting pain, that's not righteousness. That's, that's wickedness. So Paul says, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't enjoy causing you pain, and yet I don't regret it. And in fact, I even take joy in the pain that you experienced because God used that pain to draw you to repentance. The key to these two verses is in the middle section of verse 9 where he says, because you were grieved into repenting. We recognize this principle of temporary pain or discomfort producing long-term benefit in a lot of areas of our life. Financially, I, I hope you're living frugally now so that you can, uh, you might have financial freedom later. That's momentary suffering now for a, a blessing later. Medically, I hope you uh, um, allow the doctor for, to perform a, a painful procedure now that you might enjoy health later. We often experience that. Physically, uh, um, we invite physical pain that, that comes from working out and exercise now that we might know strength and health later. Friends, this is true in your relationship with Jesus. Sin always brings destruction. If you have sin right now, unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life, It'll, it'll destroy your relationship with God. It'll destroy your relationship with other believers. It'll destroy your relationship with one another. It'll destroy your relationship with the church. It'll destroy yours and the church's testimony for the gospel. And confronting sin is always painful because you must reckon with your own responsibility. You must deal with your own guilt. You must decide whether or not you will repent or to reject God's truth. The only hard, convicting sermons I've ever enjoyed hearing are the ones that were hard and convicting about sins I was not dealing with. Those are the ones I shout amen at. But the ones I get real quiet with and the ones that are unpleasant to hear is when the sermon is exposing a sin that I deal with an issue that I'm struggling with because in that moment you have to decide, you have to wrestle with, will I repent or will I reject? Will I humble myself before God or will I be a stiff neck and reject the truth of God? But friends, only repentance restores. Not forgetting your sin, not ignoring your sin, not just moving on from your sin, not hoping that no one notices your sin. Only repentance restores your relationship with God and with one another and with the church. 
That's why we must rejoice in the painful confrontation of sin because it brings about restoration in our relationship with the Lord and with one another. You see, when godly grief produces repentance, there's no regret in pain. There's also no regret in grief. So in verse 10 and 11, Paul continues this idea where he says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. You see, godly grief, in contrast to worldly grief, produces repentance. Repentance, not regret. The church at Corinth had repented and that brought Paul great joy. And there's a great difference between repentance and regret. There are a lot of folks, in fact, I would imagine most of us regret sin. When you get caught in sin, you regret sin. (laughs) When the cost of your sin becomes too great, oh, you regret it. When what attracted you to sin doesn't prove to be all that attractive anymore, you regret it. Regret comes from exposure, from shame, from guilt, from disappointment. These are all negative emotions, but only inwardly focused, and they do not draw you to repentance. Listen to me carefully. You may be full of regret this morning, but that's not what Scripture is calling you to. Regret's just an emotion of, I wish I had not done that, or I'm sorry that the consequences have befallen me. Guilt and shame and regret, they're all connected to sin, but that's not what Scripture is calling you to, friends. Paul uses the phrase, godly grief. The pain that is inflicted because of our sin that leads to not regret, but repentance. Godly grief produces repentance, and only repentance leads to salvation, righteousness, and restoration. Now, if you're stuck in guilt, shame, and regret this morning, then that leaves you with nothing more than disappointment. We're living in a culture today that's Cancel culture is all about guilt and shame and regret, but it offers no forgiveness and no restoration. That is not the gospel, friends. The gospel confronts your sin, exposes your sin, inflicts upon you godly grief, not because you know that you will regret it, but that you might repent of it and be restored from it. Being grieved over your sin and repent is what godly grief is all about. You see, godly grief is not the same as feeling guilty. Now, the English Standard Version and the, uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible use the word godly grief. If you're, if you're reading from the New American Standard or the NIV, 
Your word probably, your, your translations use sorrow. If you're in the King James this morning, it uses the word to be sorry. All of those words are trying to translate a Greek word that means to feel pain, sorrow, to cause pain, to experience sorrow. This is not what many of us mean when we use the word guilt or guilty. Guilt is shame over sin without a desire for righteousness. You can feel guilty about your sin and not be repentant. You can have guilt over things that you wish you had done or, had, or wish you had not done and not be repentant. Some of you have dysfunctional relationships built on guilt. One party gets another party to act a certain way by, by guilting them into action. Uh, we talk about giving you the guilt trip. And if you've, if you've had in a relationship like that where you do things because the other person makes you feel guilty, then here's the dynamic that's happening. You're doing those actions not because you want to or desire to. You're doing those actions out of a feeling of guilt that the other person is applying. But as soon as that guilt is no longer applied, you'll quit doing the actions. So, if you're attending church this morning out of guilt, you'll eventually fall away. Whenever that, that dynamic that's bringing guilt upon your life is removed. If you're paying tithes out of guilt, you'll someday withhold them. Whenever, whatever it is in your life that's applying the guilt is removed. If you're keeping a biblical command out of guilt, you'll soon find an excuse to ignore that command. If you're observing a biblical prohibition out of guilt, you'll soon find pleasure in it privately at first and eventually publicly. If you're doing anything out of guilt, your actions are not from the heart, but they are a fake external expression of another person's expectations. But friends, godly grief is not about making you feel guilty. Godly grief is about drawing you back to righteousness. Godly grief is about being grieved over your sin, grieved over your broken relationship with God and the church, grieved over the destruction that sin has brought in your life. Guilt only produces shame and it only condemns. It leaves you there, condemned and shamed. Godly grief leads you to repentance, righteousness, and ultimately restoration. Godly grief is not the same as feeling guilty because godly grief produces good fruit. Now, Paul says here that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas in contrast to worldly grief produces death. See, true repentance produces good fruit. How do you know if you're repentant and experiencing godly sorrow? The proof is in the living. During my college years, uh, there was what some thought was happening on our campus, a great movement of revival. It was characterized by a lot of emotions. And one of the characteristics of it was that there were many people confessing a lot of sin publicly. 
And because of the leadership of it and because of some of the things that were happening in those meetings, there was some confusion about whether or not it was really a movement of God or it was an emotional experience that, that was just that, emotional experience. And me and some other uh, Christians on campus were praying about that, seeking the Lord's uh, wisdom in that. And where we came to in that prayer was, in that prayer time was, is if, if this is of the Lord, if this is indeed godly grief that is producing repentant lives, then the testimony that repentance will be that tomorrow and the next day after that and the next year after that, there'll be a testimony of repentance. If it's just guilt and shame and a temporary emotional response, then after that emotion has subsided, the sin will continue. The testimony of godly grief and true repentance is the fruit of righteousness. Today, tomorrow, next year, 20 years from now. When God brings about godly grief in your life and you repent of that, it produces a lifestyle of repentance, not a momentary reprieve from sin. Now, one other thing here. There's no regret in pain. There's no regret in godly grief, which leads to no regrets in fellowship. So from verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter, I would characterize this as just celebratory language. Paul says that, that his, there's an interesting phrase there that he, that he says, uh, he uses the word comfort. In the end of verse 12, he says, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. And then he says in the next, next sentence, he says, verse 13, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Now what's been refreshing? What has comforted Paul? What has refreshed Titus? What has is, what is caused Paul and Titus and all those that hear about the Corinthian church to rejoice? What has caused them to rejoice to be refreshed, to be comforted, is the testimony that the church received the word that caused them grief, repented, and that the, the guilty party has been restored and forgiven, and that the relationships in the church have been restored. In other words, they're rejoiced and they are comforted in the movement of God to bring about repentance and restoration in the church. Now, a couple of things about no regrets in fellowship. Within the context of fellowship, there is no regrets in speaking truth. Not only here does Paul say that he does not regret writing these hard things to the church, but he ends this passage with a celebration of the good fruit that God has brought out of what he wrote to the church. Now, the one who causes godly grief finds um, joy in the good fruit that God brings. No one, who truly, no one who, who truly loves you will take joy in hurting you or causing you pain, but they will take joy if God uses that pain to restore the relationship. Paul's joy is in the good report that he's received, that the church has dealt with the issue of sin. It's pursuing righteousness, that their relationship with God's been restored, that their relationship with Paul has been restored, that their relationship with the offending brother has been restored. Friends, if the happiness and unity of a church is dependent on the absence of conflict, 
then that church will not allow, then that church will allow sin to remain unconfronted. If the happiness and unity of a church is dependent upon the absence of conflict, it will allow the destruction of sin to grow. And if the happiness and unity of a church is dependent on the absence of conflict, it will allow the testimony of the church to suffer in its refusal to deal with sin in its midst. But when the joy and unity of a church is dependent on the pursuit of righteousness, sin is confronted, but the destruction of sin is halted and its activity resisted, and the testimony of the church and the individual saints are protected. Friends, let your joy be in the fruit of righteousness, even at the great cost of offending with truth. There's no regrets in the fellowship when we speak truth to one another. There's no regrets in the fellowship when we hear truth. When you are offended under righteousness, once you repent, you will rejoice in the offense. Now, there's, that's a, I know that's a conditioned testimony. When you are offended unto righteousness, once you repent, you will rejoice in the offense. Imagine with me that you've gone to the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been there, it's a dramatic place to be. And to stand on the precipice of the Grand Canyon is, is pretty impressive and, and, and awe-inspiring. It is a very, very steep drop-off. Now imagine with me while you're standing there on the, grand, on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you decide to, to take a selfie of you with the great, uh, great canyon behind you. And as you're taking that selfie, you're stepping backwards toward the edge. And someone sees you doing that and realizes that you're about to step off the edge of the Grand Canyon and fall to your death. And so, in an effort to save your life, they reach out to you, they grab you, they pull you back to safety. But in the scuffle of pulling you back, you drop that iPhone of yours and it falls and it breaks into a million pieces down in the Grand Canyon that you never can return again. Now, at that moment, are you mad about your phone? Or are you glad that you've been saved from dying? In that moment, are you frustrated that somehow somebody has made you stumble and drop something that was valuable to you? Or are you thankful that your life has been saved? I hope, dear friends, in that moment, you would be willing to let loose of the phone because of the value of your life being preserved. When godly grief leads to repentance, there is joy for the offended. Thankful for the offense, thankful for the offender, and joyful in God's grace to draw you back to him. There's no regrets in the fellowship when we speak truth. There's no regrets in the fellowship when we hear truth. And ultimately, for the church, there are no regrets. There are many churches who have no conflict. But those churches also tend to have no joy. Joy flows from the work of God. And in, in, in individuals convicting of sin and restoring to righteousness, 
in families being confronted with the gospel's call to holiness and sacrifice and choosing Jesus over their own self-indulgence, in churches being challenged that your testimony is always at stake and that, that your, your ministry always at risk of being hindered and muted by the entanglement of sin and choosing to risk everything that you might be most effective for King Jesus and his kingdom, the joy of any fellowship Faith, the joy of any faithful church is the current testimony of the work of God among them to save the lost from sin, to restore the wayward to a right relationship with Jesus and fellowship with the redeemed and keeping the saints in faithful obedience before the Lord. Friends, I'm convinced that when we speak truth to one another, there will be no regrets in the church. Maybe you're aware of this, maybe you're not, but something dramatic has changed in our world in recent years, and I mean dramatic. This change has affected how we write laws, how we enforce laws, how we educate our children in schools, how we practice medicine, how parents raise their children in their home. This revolutionary change is the elevation of emotion and feelings over truth and facts. Today, if you are accused of causing one to, someone to feel unsafe or to feel bad or to feel anxious, it is deemed as dangerous and offensive as actually physically attacking them. Often assessments that identify a, a, a deficiency, a disorder, or a dysfunction are ignored because such an assessment may cause a person to feel bad or to feel poor about themselves. In a culture that's elevated the individual and self to be the primary concern and authority, it is no surprise that the protection of an individual's emotions has become the primary objective. Now, we see that in a host of areas in our life, but what seems to be the one that has received the most attention and has become the most destructive now is sexual identity. You cannot speak truth to one another in this culture because it's deemed as offensive, abusive, hostile discrimi discrimination, and, and the culture around us deems it as morally wrong. But friends, when you, when, you deny the church, when you deny the truth for the sake of preserving an individual's emotions, you only accomplish a temporary fleeting moment of comfort before consequences and destructions come. Friends, sin always brings destruction. You can't ignore it for a while. You can pretend that the destruction of sin is not coming for a while, but it will come. And there's no amount of ignoring and there's no amount of cultural confusion that can erase or deny the reality of the destruction of sin. The church must not bend the knee at the altar of emotion and the idol of self. The church must speak truth to one another and to the world. This is not optional. You don't get to opt into this, dear friends. The church must speak truth to one another and to the world. 
Lies bring death, but truth brings life. Lies are sweet, are a sweet smelling poison, but it still kills. Truth may sting for a moment, but it brings, but it breaks the chains of sin's destruction. It brings life to the individual and health to the church. Living with no regrets is not from avoiding pain. It's not from avoiding pain of, of speaking truth, but, but learning, leaning into it while trusting the Lord Jesus to use his word to bring life and healing to the church. I, I just wanna set you free this morning, friends. I'm not calling you to be rude or offensive. I'm not calling you to be arrogant and enjoy causing someone distress, but I am calling you to this. You are blessing no one by refusing to speak truth. You are helping no one by ignoring sin. The regret will be when destruction comes that you did not speak when you had the opportunity. The regret will be when you had the opportunity to rescue someone from the destruction of sin and you chose to remain silent. Paul says, I don't regret what I said because it produced godly grief and godly grief that leads to repentance does not re produce regrets, but joy and comfort and thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.